Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. You are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And as you know, you can listen to us live every Wednesday morning from 10 to 11 Eastern Time. And we archive the show at the end of the day, so then you can listen to it anytime. I have two guests coming up in this hour, and my first guest is with me now is the author Craig Hare Harline. He's also a professor at Brigham Young University. And we're going to be talking about his new book, Conversions, Two Family Stories from the Reformation and Modern America. And in this book, he explores the effects of religious conversion on family relationships. And, of course, social workers are always interested in family relationships. Uh, Second guest is Dr. Michelle May. She's a um, family practitioner. She's the author of She's a Mindful Eating Expert and author. Her new book is Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat with Diabetes, a mindful eating program for thriving with pre-diabetes or diabetes. And uh, this book apparently has been named to Time Magazine's top ten notable new diet books. So, uh, as you know, I always like to talk about dieting, and, of course, diabetes is a huge problem. I think 25 million people in the United States suffer from diabetes, and more of them have also pre-diabetes. But first, we have Professor Greg Harline. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Nice to be on your show, Catherine. I mean, your book is an interesting book. Uh, I, I, I am not, you are his, an historian, and I think you just said to me before the show you've been at Brigham Young University for, what, 20 years, the past That's 20 right. years? A native Californian. I just have, I was in Utah a few weeks ago. Beautiful country, very different. I'm in New York, so um, a big contrast. But anyway, all right, so your book, um, you kind of, let's talk about first, you know, the, the, why you wrote the book. I mean, what interested you? I mean, you have two stories going on, as I understand it, in this book. A book about conversion in the Reformation, and then a book about the effects of religious conversion in the present day, and you kind of weave these two stories together. Right. I, I started off with the 17th century story, a Reformation story, because that's usually what I study, and that's usually, you know, where I muck about in archives and so on, trying to find old stories. Um, and as I was developing that story, I realized it sounded an awful lot like uh, a lot of modern stories that I've heard of on the same subject of how conversion affects families. And so I especially thought of one story that I could tell alongside it, uh, just to make the point more explicitly than I usually do, that these old stories really have a lot to say to us today. We sometimes think because they happened 300 years ago, 1,000 years ago, or even, you know, 50 years ago, that this is in the past, it's irrelevant, you know, to us modern, enlightened people, and so on. But, but um, you know, to me, the, the, what happened in the 17th century might as well have happened yesterday, because I see so many parallels with our own lives, and I feel like we can gain a lot of insight from it. Uh, well, I happen to agree with you, and I think, Craig, and uh, I think particularly in the United States as Americans, we kind of live in the here and now and what's going to happen next, and we really don't have a real good sense of history. I mean, even mm-hmm. history a hundred years ago, let alone during the Reformation, but um, so I think it's important, obviously your book is important, to make that connection. Um, okay, so you're saying that uh, religious conversion, I guess I want to ask you this before we 
uh, talk specifically about the book. Are there lots of conversions or religious conversions going on today? I mean, is that something that is, is, is I mean, in terms of numbers here in the United States? Oh, yeah, probably more in the U.S. than in most places. Um, a recent poll from a couple of years ago showed that 44% of American adults had changed religions at least once in their lives. That, that's almost half the population, you know, the adult population. So that is a common phenomenon. And I suppose my point was just because it's common doesn't mean it's casual. It's, it still causes problems um, in relationships. And then there are a lot of new things that cause problems as well, of course, There's a lot of things that can divide families. But, but uh, we're, not, we're not so much different from the Reformation people that way. All right, so show us. How are the challenges of the Reformation? Uh, how can that offer us insights, as I read in the beginning of, you know, just a few minutes ago? How does that help us to ha- give insight to families who are facing similar situations today? Because if you're saying, for, as you say, 44%, that's almost half the population, that mm-hmm. statistic really surprises me, mm-hmm. are converting. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a huge amount. Um, in the, the family that I found in the 17th century, um, one day I was looking in an archive and I found a journal written in 1654 and it emerged that this was a journal by a young man named Jacob Rolandus, 21 years old, who was the son of a Protestant preacher um, living in the Netherlands. And um, the family moved to an area that was almost entirely Catholic. And in fact, the preacher's job was to try to evangelize this area and try to convert them to the Reformed religion. And it turned out instead that the young son, Jacob, converted to Catholicism. And this was really heartbreaking to his parents, especially his father, who was a preacher, and also to his sister. And um, because he was 21 and not yet of age, you weren't of age until 25 at that time, um, he felt like he had to run away from home in order to practice his new religion freely. So he did. He ran away from home, ran across the border, um, and uh, started practicing his Catholicism. And his his family, you know, his father came running after him with a bunch of cousins and uncles and, and felt like the boy had been brainwashed. They, they tried physically to grab him and take him back home. And, you know, all these very dramatic scenes are, de- are depicted in his journal. And I thought, wow, this is, you know, this sounds like something that, you know, could have happened recently. We, we aren't beyond this. We like to think that we're so uh, tolerant and so on nowadays. And yet the religion still divides families. And I still know accounts of families who are absolutely divided by it. Yeah, well, so, you mentioned the word brain. I mean, you mentioned the word brainwashed, and sometimes I think. Of, I mean, many of us, or I think of brainwashed in terms of cults. Um, and we're not talking about cults; we're talking about religious conversion. So, what are right. some of the specific issues? What are the issues? What I mean, yeah, his father and the and his father and his relatives go after him, try to bring him back. Um, let's some of the specifics psychological what are the dynamics in the family what right. begins to happen yeah the, the first thing is that um in, in a theological sense you feel like the other person is going to hell you, you feel like your child is lost and then I, I suppose in a psychological sense you feel like you put all this time and energy anybody who's a parent understands this you put all this energy into your child and there's just no way that your intelligent child could have converted unless they had been duped and brainwashed and so on by someone. And that's exactly how it felt in the 17th century. And yeah, we still have that in the modern world. Um, there were, there was, you know, there's always the theory that some, and, and you have to call it a cult, right? To, to make it, uh, derogatory. It, because again, a, a, a normal religion, well, you, you know, that, that's not the same thing that, yeah. so it has to be something that's, that's beyond the pale, beyond ordinary, um, life and ordinary religion. So the parents of the 17th century really felt this was the case. And 
Yet Jacob, from his point of view, when he wrote letters back to his family, he felt like they had been brainwashed. Um, that, that you know, that there's no way that intelligent people such as they could have believed reformed Protestantism. So that that's the psychology on both sides. You just can't believe that your child or that your family um, is willing to go along with these kinds of beliefs. And that still exists in the, in the present as well. There were a lot of scares in the 60s and 70s, you know, remember about the moons. And it turns out uh, all these these de- de- uh, brainwashing sorts of things turned out to have really not been very effective because most of the children had gone along of their own accord. But it was important to the parents to believe that their children must have been brainwashed. Are there any, I guess, are there any characteristics of certain families that you found either in the ref- at the time in Jacob's time or even in present day time that sort of um, uh, outline the type of families where people, these forty four percent of people, may convert or go to a different religion? I mean, is there? Well, any- there's, there's, it's very hard to try to pin down why people convert. Um, we like to have one reason. It's it's purely spiritual or it's purely social, and usually it's a whole mix of things. So I don't know that there's a type of converter. Um, I, I think the, the the main thing to remember is that almost everyone is affected by this. Almost everyone has someone in their family who has changed religions or done something else really to offend the family. But there, there's always some convert there, and it, it just upsets things and, and makes people have to reconsider what they once took for granted. So I, I don't know about types. Well, when you say they have to reconsider what they once took for granted, what does that mean? You mean that they took for granted this person was always going to be within exactly. the same exactly. religion? Or right. do they you begin re- to re- question their own religion I mean, you, as a family? I mean, wouldn't that be an issue? Because, you know, someone that they love, a daughter, a son, whoever it is, goes and, and embraces another religion. Does it make the family or different family members begin to question their beliefs? Well, there's a whole range of reactions, and that's what I was interested in. Um, but it, it can, and at first it, it's very threatening if somebody changes, because if you also feel like you know, you've raised this child this way, and you assume the child is going to go that way, but of course if you're a parent and you see your child, children grow up, you know that it doesn't always go. It often doesn't go the way you expected it to go, so why would that be any different for religion, I suppose? But sometimes the family's identity is so tied up with their religion that when the person leaves the religion, it threatens the family identity as well. And, and that's exactly what was the case in the Reformation when this problem first emerged. Uh, for 800 years in the West, everyone had been a part of the same religion, of Roman Catholicism. And once the Reformation came on the scene and people had more than one religion to choose from, this, this is when that whole phenomenon began, and we still have it with us today, um, you know, of people changing religion. We, we might have slightly different reactions today, but part of my point in my book is to show that we're not much different from those families. There were families in that time who successfully negotiated this problem, and there were families who completely disowned their children as well. You know, we have both ends of the spectrum. Well, let's talk about the successful negotiation. Then I want to tie it into mixed marriages, and I'm using that term because I think today, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I think that many families are faced with uh, their children marrying somebody of a different religion. It's, uh, somehow it seems to fit into to to your what you're talking about in your definitely in your book. no, yeah. it's part of the same dynamic. Yeah. yeah. Um, the more successful negotiation was actually in the modern story, but I'm not trying to say it was successful because it was modern and we're so enlightened, because there, again, there were families in the Reformation who did this very well, too. It just so happened that this modern family, um, you know, was the one, it looked like they weren't going to have a successful relationship, and, and they ended up having it. 
So I tell the modern story um, not just to show that it's exactly parallel to the Reformation, but to also add a modern twist. And in this story, the uh, story also begins with a young man who's 22 years old. His family is basically of an evangelical persuasion, and at that age he decides to convert to Mormonism. And his parents are just, you know, heartbroken. They can't believe, because again, they think this is a cult. How can their intelligent son, he's a very gifted fellow, how could you have fallen for something, you know, so obviously wrong? Um, and um, it, it really causes a rift in the family. They don't disown him as the 17th century family eventually did, but um, it really causes tension when they're around each other. Then the modern twist comes in, um, because so far it's been a pretty straightforward Reformation story. Um, the modern twist comes in when after three years as a Mormon, the young man realizes he's gay. And so he comes out, he, and this is back in the 70s, he feels like he has to leave his church. His parents are delighted that he's no longer Mormon, but then when they found out the reason why, you know, then they're really <laughs> perplexed. They're really upset, and it's like, that, you know, this is impossible. So things are not looking good for this family. But after some years of talk and, you know, um, understanding, and he, um, he moves away to Switzerland and so on, um, this family is actually able to negotiate uh, successful uh, acceptance of one another. And, and I kind of discuss this in the book in regard to three different basic reactions. One is to completely reject your child's decision. The other is to tolerate it, and that's what most people do. But tolerate means to kind of put up with. You, you wish it would be otherwise, but oh well, this is what it is. And I, I wish they would change, but in the meantime, you know, I love them, and they're my child, and they're with me. But I will, and I, so yeah. I will tolerate what they're doing, though I don't approve. Exactly. And then the final and the most difficult level, and that some families in the Reformation and some modern families attain, is this level of acceptance, where you, you're saying, "Okay, I accept your decision, but that's something that is good for you. Um, maybe not for me, but for you. And I accept you the way you are. And there's something higher." Um, than just, you know, this debate that we're having on this subject that, uh, and that higher thing is our relationship with each other, our love for each other. And this family does that, um, and they do it actually on the basis of their religious beliefs, which you wouldn't have expected from his parents. They're very conservative religiously, but they um, they were able to, to accept their son, and, and they end up having this relationship that lasts, you know, from the late 70s to the present day. His, his mother has since died. Um and his father is now 91 years old, but they've had a, a great relationship. So it, it's that ability to accept, I think, that really brings about a flourishing relationship. Um, but most most of the time you don't reject. Most uh, most families end up kind of muddling along, you know, tolerating each other. It, Craig, I, I, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking, you know, all or most religions, or let's say the major religions that I'm familiar with, the Judeo-Christian religions, and... Um, preach tolerance, love, acceptance, but then when it actually comes down to, I want you to talk about this, because when it comes down to your own family, um, we're, I think most families, as you say, okay, they will tolerate their children uh, accepting another religion, or even it doesn't even have to be religion, living a different kind of a lifestyle, but they just tolerate it. They really don't accept it. They don't, yeah. you know. So what we say and what we preach in all of these religions seems to be this this kind of a, a disconnect in terms of the way you actually interact with your own family members who choose to make who have different choices, whether it's religious or anything else. Well, it's an interesting dynamic because, on the one hand your family ties are what might motivate you to reconsider your, you know, earlier prejudices. 
um, they might make you reconsider, all right, you know, I want to keep this relationship with my child, so I'm going to have to see this issue differently if I want to do that. On the other hand, though, precisely because of your family relationship, your expectations are a little stronger. You know, you ex- it's one thing to, you know, see somebody else's kid and say, oh, they're going to be okay. But when it happens to your own kid, yeah. it's like, no, you, you know, you can't do this. So sometimes those, those family dynamics accentuate you know, all of our feelings. Um, and obviously our relationships don't occur just within families. What I have to say in the book applies to bigger relationships. But the point is they're, they're so focused in the family and they're so intense that if you can solve it there, maybe you can solve it anywhere else too. And, and so that family dynamic goes both ways. Our expectations make us maybe a little less tolerant of them, and yet our love for them maybe will cause us to open our minds and say, I better rethink this issue. Yeah. And I want to get back to, because I did mention it, I don't think, I want to get more specific about this, but this whole issue of mixed marriage, because it's a huge thing. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that a lot of parents struggle with it, and, and you're so right. You know, if your girlfriend's uh, daughter or son marry somebody who's outside of their religion, you're non-judgmental, very tolerant, and then when your own kid decides to do that, it becomes a whole different, <laughs> it's a that's different right. ballgame, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, when, when you enter the marriage yourself, if you enter a mixed marriage, it's a little bit of a different dynamic than the parent-child relationship, because you're entering into that with your eyes open, as well, as far as you can, right? Yeah. As, as a, I'm not so sure so, about how you, your you, eyes open exactly. for the moment. Exactly. <laughs> well, you think your eyes are open, at yeah. least. You, but you know what you're getting into somewhat. You're saying, okay, you know, we've accepted this, and sure, then you still have a lot of things to work out. But when you're raising the children, um, you, you know, you're raising them in the expectation that they're, they're going to be part of the way that you raised them. And, and so that's what makes that maybe a little more difficult. Now, again, in practice, you enter the mixed marriage and you think, you think you know what you're getting into and, and so you, you, but at least you've entered into that willingly. So that's a slightly different dynamic, but, but you end up facing many of the same sorts of problems and, and, you know, can your, uh, love for each other transcend your particular, um, convictions on this or that issue? But what about the parents? Let's talk about the parents and how they accept uh, and they, not only their children, but their grandchildren and all of the conflicts that can come out of that. Well, I think for the parents, uh, if your child stays in your religion but marries someone of a different religion, that is almost the same dynamic as having your child himself or herself convert, right? Because yeah. they've, almost, they've almost given up what you thought was really crucial. Some religions, especially it seems more important than others that you marry within the faith. And, and if you don't, that really is threatening um, to some family's sense of identity and wholeness uh, and so on. So, you know, to me, again, it, it's, it's about how you, uh, how you decide you're going to approach this or what your highest priority is. Is your highest priority your relationship with your child? And, uh, or is it, you know, your particular conviction? What the family does in my study is that they end up, making their conviction, or sorry, they end up making their relationship the highest expression of their conviction. And there's good grounds to do that in the Judeo-Christian tradition, to say that, you know, my relationship with this person, that is my faith. That is my highest form of faith. That's how I show best my love to God or whatever, is by loving others close to me. So I'm going to put that above my particular beliefs on this or that issue. And it's, it's a very difficult thing to do, because... 
many religions teach you to value the you know your religion highest and and you many people in that religion want to do that they they want to value their religion more than anything else and sometimes when they see a child leaving it it threatens that sense of value so are you Craig most are you saying that m- many religions um will say that you have to value your religion highest, in other words, over and above your relationship with your children? Well, hopefully that's a choice you don't have to make. Hopefully those two things can be reconciled by saying, again, that your relationships are the most important aspect of your religion. Um, so it, it kind of depends on the person. You can, the, the Religions provide the grounds both for separating from your children and for uniting with them. You know, you, 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 you can find both um, impulses um, in in the same religious tradition, um, in Christianity, for instance, you have Jesus saying, "Whoever won't leave father and mother for my sake isn't worthy of me." Right, and then you also have in the New Testament um, the uh, imperative to love uh, your brother as yourself, and and to make your relationships the highest point. So it's kind of up to you to reconcile. I don't think it's clear cut in any religion. I think people choose which tradition within their religion to follow. And again, I think you can find both impulses within most religious traditions. This is a complicated issue. It's, it's really, um, <laughs> and I happen to know quite a few people who are struggling with this. I want to, I want to also, because you mentioned, you know, you added another twist to the modern story that um, in, in this particular family, in the modern version, the their mm-hmm. son was gay. Now, how does that right. fit in? I mean, that is that what it, Well, to me, the dynamic was exactly the same because your child is something that you didn't anticipate, or and so it's that's why to me this modern story is the same as the Reformation story. It just comes in a different form because the the dynamic in the family is the same. You're faced with the same choice: Um, Am I going to uh, love my child, or am I going to reject my child because I feel like that? You know, uh, that is a wrong orientation or whatever. Right now, it's, it's, for some people, it's not even an issue anymore, but for other people, it's still a very, it's still a very important issue. So I feel like the dynamic is essentially the same and the choices are the same. You have to sit there and say, all right, how can I, how can I reconcile this with my convictions? How can I make my relationship, you know, my, the highest expression of my faith? Another, we're talking about the parents. I'm also, as you're talking, I am thinking about the siblings because each siblings are going to all, depending on who they are and how attached they are to their religion of origin or whatever you want to call it or how they were raised, they have exactly. a different relationship with their sibling. Let's talk about that because that has an impact on the family dynamics as well. One of the best things about the 17th century story for me was the letters written between Jacob Rolandus and his sister Maria. Um, because she was a very devout Reformed Calvinist, and he had become this very devout Catholic. And they wrote back and forth to each other, um, expressing their love for one another, but essentially saying, look, if you don't change, you're going to hell. Um, And these letters are really heartbreaking, and they're really moving at the same time. They pour everything they have into them. And what that did was... They, they were basically arguing about all the classic issues of the Reformation, but when they're traded between a brother and a sister, there's this whole new urgency to them, and everything seems to be much more important and life-threatening than it was before, again, because of that family dynamic. So it really depends, I think, on the siblings themselves. There's often a generational thing that 
impedes understanding between parents and children, you know, if, if the child converts. Um, but it's not always just generational. Sometimes it depends on how devout your sibling is as well. Um, for instance, in the modern story, um, the, the star of the story, a fellow named Michael, is, has a brother who has no problem either with his change to Mormonism or with his coming out as a gay person. And that had a lot to do with it, you know, that he was of the same generation as Michael. So that wasn't that big of a deal. But, in, you know, in other families, that, that dynamic can be different. The children might feel more like the parents in some cases. But they, they are faced with the same decision. You know, do I want to have a relationship with this person, or am I going to cut that person off because they're doing something I don't approve of? Well, I, and the way you say that, I, I'm thinking, it, does religion serve to separate us, or does it's supposed to bring us together? I mean, <laughs> well, and when that last sentence, what you just said, is kind of, I, I, I think that, you know, that does reflect, that is echoed in a lot of families and parents and siblings, you know, if they, one person in the family won't do or believe in what everybody else believes in. So, in terms of that, I mean, isn't that, I mean, and, and I keep thinking about that, I mean, is religion divisive, divisive? It can it really depends on the people. It certainly can be, and it has proven to be in history, but can also be a uniting force. And I think it really depends on which tradition within your own tradition be, which you decide to follow. I think, uh, I think as a historian of religion, as I study them in big religions, I see these conflicts even within the same tradition. As I said, uh, it's, it's religion that gives you the justification to separate from unbelievers, and it's also religion that gives you the motive to want to unite with unbelievers. So it really depends on the people. I think you can find, if you want to unite, you can find within your tradition ways to unite. And if you want to divide, you can find that as well. I happen to prefer the uniting um, impulse, but there are other people who, who feel differently. Yeah. I agree. I also like to find the uniting impulse. So what do we want to, you know, besides recommending your book, um, convert, <laughs> Conversion. It's the answer, which, the answer to all problems. Yes. yes. Just read Professor Harline's book, and, uh, and we, you've answered all the questions. I mean, we just we obviously just touched on some of the issues that are in the book, but you can get the book online, bookstores everywhere. Um, but before you tell us, you know, give us sort of an ending to our discussion, uh, what website can we go to to get more information? Well, you can find a book um, on Amazon, certainly. You can buy it in a Kindle edition, or you can buy you know, the, the hardcover edition. Um, if you have another sort of electronic reader, you can go on the Yale University Press website, and um, there you can find a number of other formats uh, that you can download it electronically. So th those are probably the safest bets. Okay. So what do we want to kind of summarize what we've been talking about today? What do we want to leave our listeners with? I suppose it is that the choice is really up to you. It, it's not dictated. There's not one simple answer in any religious tradition. I think if you want to unite with a family member, if you want to reconcile with a family member, it is up to you. And it does take two people. Um, sometimes a child leaves the family way or tradition, and they don't want anything to do with the family anymore. So it, it does take two people who, to value their relationship. And I think if you really value that relationship, you can find a way to make it work, whatever your religious tradition is. Yeah, I think that's a good message if you value the relationship. If you value the relationship, then you have choices. It's not necessarily, you know, that there's only one way, and I think people get hooked into that, especially if they have a very strong belief in their religion, yes. that there yep. are no choices. There are no other ways to reconcile this relationship with somebody who has left the fold, but there are. 
And I yes. think you, yeah, I think it's really important to keep that in mind. Yeah, that's the point. Great having you on the show today. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, very interesting discussion. Thank you so much. Uh, professor Greg Harline, he's a professor at Brigham Young University, a uh, professor of history, not surprising, and his new book is Conversions. Well, um, have a great day. Thank you. See you later. Now, we're going to take a short break because my next guest is here, and uh, my next guest is Dr. Michelle May. She is a family physician, and she's going to be talking about her new book, Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat with Diabetes. And this is a mindful eating program for thriving with prediabetes or diabetes. And there are many, many, I think 25 million people who have been, who are diagnosed with diabetes in the United States. So it's a major problem. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com, the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support surprise you stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com you're listening to the katherine zox show if you'd like to join our conversation this morning call now the toll-free number is 866-472-5788 that number again is 866-472-5788 we're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Listen to us live every Wednesday morning from 10 to 11 Eastern. My next guest uh, joining me is Dr. Michelle May. Uh, she is a family physician. She's an award-winning author. And her new book is called Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat with Diabetes. Kind of in a way, and I'm going to ask Dr. Mitley, I don't, it's not exactly an oxymoron, but she does discuss the topic of the book in her introduction, a mindful eating program for thriving with prediabetes or diabetes. Uh, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Dr. May. Thank you so much, Catherine. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to have you on because I'm fascinated with this topic. I think it's horrific. I think I'd mentioned it before. Not the topic isn't horrific, but there are 25.8 million people who have diabetes in this country, 
and 79 million people have prediabetes. So we've established that it's an issue, it's a problem. We have to do something about this because that kind of defines a sick society physically. Yeah. Yeah. It sure does. It sure does. And I think it's really an indicator of some of the other things that are going on in our culture. And I think it also should be a real warning sign that a lot of what we're doing to try to prevent these problems isn't really working that well. Yeah, well, and what are, to prevent the problem, yeah, let's, maybe we should start with that because why do we have so many people, and I think you have to make the distinction um, between type 2 diabetes and type 1 diabetes because there is a difference. One, there's a genetic quality, and the other is that I think that people make choices that perhaps, or not perhaps, that do um, uh, prompt the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes because they've, they, don't, they don't eat properly or they don't eat well. Well, there certainly is a big difference, and this book focuses on type 2 diabetes. I think that is the one that we can have the most impact on lifestyle change. It does turn out, though, that there is a genetic predisposition. There are certainly families that are loaded with type 2 diabetes, but the nice, the nice thing about it is that the studies really show that consistent lifestyle changes make a huge difference, both in the prevention of this, the, the prevention of the progression from prediabetes to diabetes, and also once you have the diagnosis, you can really help uh, your, light, your life uh, longevity, your uh, wellness by making some changes in the way you live your life. So the good news is we can do something about this. Dr. May, what is pre-diabetes? What is the definition of pre-diabetes? Well, without getting into a bunch of numbers, what it is is when you think about uh, people kind of have this vague understanding sometimes about what diabetes is, but essentially what happens is that your body is no longer able to produce enough insulin to keep your blood sugar in a safe and effective range. So pre-diabetes is a very important diagnosis because it is the indicator, it is the early indicator that your pancreas is no longer going to be able to produce enough insulin. So when your doctor says you have prediabetes based on lab work, that doesn't mean, okay, I'm going to wait around. That is a sign that you can truly do something to change the course of this because once it's diabetes, it's very difficult to reverse that process. And you, and you're obviously the the way in which to do it is through mindful eating. Now, how yeah. do we do mind? We're going to talk about the definition of mindful eating, but how can we accomplish mindful eating in the context of the American diet? Well, it's very important because we certainly live in a food abundant culture. I know we, there's a lot of angst about that, and a lot of people, you know, slamming their fists on tables about that. But the truth is that. We live in a culture where there is a lot of food, a lot of food available to people. So it's very important that we as individuals begin to self-manage our own intake. If we depend on our environment to control the food and, and only put out the healthy things, we're going to be in trouble. It is really time for people to say, this is, this is the environment I live in. I am in charge of the decisions that I make, and I want to make choices that support good health and, and energy. That's very well said. Now, that would be would that be considered a definition of mindful eating? 
Well, I think a simpler definition of mindful eating is eating with intention and attention. So eating with intention and attention. So purpose and awareness. So when I have somebody I'm working with who has struggled, for example, with yo-yo dieting or diabetes or other problems related to their eating, they can set an intention both for their eating in general but also for their meal-to-meal occasion. So, for example, my favorite personal intention when I eat is to feel better when I'm done than I did when I started. I want to feel better when I'm done than I did when I started. So how many times have you sat down to eat something that was really good and ate so much that you were absolutely miserable at the end? That's not feeling better. And the consequences of eating that amount of food or that type of food in excess are, are both, both immediate as well as long-term. So the idea of mindful eating is it's not about saying, okay, you have to eat this way or you'll go blind from your diabetes or you'll go into kidney failure. It's about saying, right now, in this moment, what can I do? What can I change? How can I make decisions that work best for me? And that's all about intention and attention. Yeah, and I think, obviously, in the book, you have very specific ways in which to do it, which fit into the way I eat. I mean, and as I was reading your book, I'm thinking I wanted to just share a story with you. I mean, I weigh 104 pounds. I'm five feet tall, and so I'm the right weight for my height. And I went to have a routine colonoscopy, and I'm, you know, lying on the gurney or whatever waiting to get the thing done, and the nurse comes in to take a history and to ask me some questions. And she herself weighs probably close to 400 pounds. And, I, and this is in a medical facility, and instead of, she's asking me questions about, uh, do I take vitamins, do I take vitamin D, do I take, you know, medications for, you know, uh, you know different kinds of uh, um, osteopenia, whatever it was. But she never, I'm sitting there saying, well, I eat well, I don't take a lot of medication. She really wasn't interested in that, which I thought was interesting. I mean, this is a medical facility. She obviously isn't taking care of herself, and yet I am, and she was more concerned with drugs, medication, uh, vitamins, um, which I kind of thought was really kind of off-base. Can, can you respond mm. to that? You know, that, I think that is a very interesting observation, and obviously I don't really know what was going on in that situation. Yeah. You know, obviously a medical history um, is usually focused on whatever this particular situation is, but I think sometimes people make assumptions about others based on their size or their weight. So she may have made assumptions based on your small size that you naturally eat healthy. And I actually find that that's not always the case. It may be the case with you, as it sounds like from reading the book, but the truth is that there are a lot of people who are a quote-unquote healthy BMI that don't make healthy choices at all. Yet, because our focus has been so much on weight instead of lifestyle choices, I think sometimes we forget to ask those important questions of all people of all sizes because, as you said, nutrition and physical activity are very important. I would also say that, in my personal opinion, she missed an opportunity to reinforce the choices that you're making. She missed an opportunity to point out how amazing it is that your 
choices regarding your physical activity and, and nutrition are supporting your health in the long run. And I think sometimes we just focus so much on what's wrong that we forget to, to notice what's right. Yeah, that's a good point, and I think that happens, uh, that does, that happens a lot. And you mentioned you said it's not necessarily weight, so that weight isn't necessarily correlated with diabetes or prediabetes. I mean, you could be making poor choices, have the right BMI, body mass index, the right, you know, you weigh the uh, the right amount for the, your your uh, body, your frame and your height, et cetera. So, in other words... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There, isn't there some kind of a correlation? Or there not? is absolutely a correlation between weight and prediabetes and diabetes, without a doubt. However, the the question mark is: Is it weight that's causing it, or is weight a symptom of the choices? As is diabetes. So, in other words, there is this actual syndrome called metabolic syndrome. This is what makes pre, the diagnosis of prediabetes so very important. There is this syndrome of diseases associated with elevated blood pressure, elevated triglyceride level, elevated weight or, or, or BMI or waist circumference, and elevated cholesterol levels, so specifically LDL cholesterol levels. So when we're talking about prediabetes and diabetes, we are not simply talking about somebody who's overweight. We are talking about somebody who has a syndrome of metabolic abnormalities that puts them at very high risk for diabetes and eventually for cardiovascular disease. So when we, if we only focus on weight, we're going to miss a lot of the people who are, are truly in, going to have difficulty. So I think from my perspective, I really like to have people think about the things that they're in charge of. What, what in your environment, what in your day-to-day life can you make choices about? Now, that doesn't mean that you have to follow a rigid, um, uh, to-the-letter kind of plan. In fact, just by the title of the book, Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat with Diabetes, I'm not talking about any kind of a rigid plan at all. But what we're talking about is conscious decision-making versus moving through our current environment, eating whatever shows up, because that's what's going to get you into trouble. All right, let's take your paradigm, I'm calling it that, and you wake up in the morning and a typical day, how would you follow that? What would you do? First of all, an example of what you eat if you were at home eating three meals a day, or let's say you go out either for a business lunch or out for dinner for pleasure. Well, that's a, I think paradigm is a wonderful way of, of couching this because it truly is a paradigm. It is such a paradigm shift that I'm, I'm even going to ask that we, that we shift the question because your question did exactly what most questions in our old paradigm in the old way that people have looked at diabetes and weight and other kinds of issues and focused on what people eat. What, what we decided to do in our work is not focus necessarily on what people eat first, but focus on why they eat in the first place. So if I could, if I could have you think about this for just a moment, we are all born with the instinctive ability to eat when we're hungry and stop when we're full. When we were babies, we knew exactly how much fuel we needed to grow, to play, to learn, to explore. And in between our meals, we didn't think about food at all. We did all of those things. We played, we moved, we explored. And then when our fuel levels got low, we got hungry again and we ate again. 
So that effortless, instinctive ability to manage our fuel intake is really the basis of, of this whole idea of eat what you love, love what you eat. When people grow up in our current culture and they begin to eat because there's food on the table, because mom makes them clean their plate, because they can upsize their meal for 59 cents more, because they're stressed, because they're bored, because they're eating in front of the television, all of these other reasons that people learn to eat end up creating this situation where people consume too much fuel for their body's needs. And ultimately, particularly in in the situation we're talking about today, diabetes, that constant excess fuel intake causes people, causes their their system to be overwhelmed and eventually to, to cause them to not be able to produce enough insulin to keep up with the amount of fuel they're taking in. That's the diagnosis of diabetes. So rather than focusing first on what people eat, we decided to go back one more step in the decision-making chain and focus on why people eat in the first place. So going back to your question, yep. what would you do in the morning? So what I, what I help people focus on is when you feel like eating, the first thing you do is ask yourself, am I hungry? Am I actually hungry? And what that allows a person to do is to begin to notice the difference between wanting to eat and needing to eat. Now, in the morning, it's a little challenging because sometimes people aren't in the habit of eating breakfast. On the other hand, sometimes people don't eat breakfast in the morning because they've been eating until late at night. So if they wake up in the morning and they ask the question, am I hungry, and they're not, they need to take a step back and say, well, why not? I've been sleeping all night. I should be hungry right now. What happened last night that I wasn't? So what we're doing then, Catherine, is we're getting to the essence of the problem. What is really happening that I'm no longer meeting my body's needs for fuel appropriately? Now, later in the day... I feel like eating. Again, I ask the question, am I hungry? And I look for those physical signs that my body needs fuel. I've got some growling in my stomach. I feel like my blood sugar is starting to dip a little bit. All of those signs that say my body needs fuel, if those symptoms are there, then that's an exactly appropriate time to begin to plan food. And then we focus on what to eat. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. And, and the word that keeps coming up as you're describing mindful eating and, and, and this process of why am I eating this is pay attention. Pay attention to what you're eating. Um, you know, as, as you described, when you wake up in the morning, uh, you know, in the middle of the day, if your stomach is growling, and very oftentimes you do the opposite. You, you may not be mm-hmm. hungry at all, and someone comes up to you and says, want this donut, you know, why don't we, let's have a cup of coffee. And you hadn't even thought about it, you don't even want it, and you sit down and you eat the donut and have a cup of coffee with exactly, your friend. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, so we might say, oh, it's the donut. The donut is the problem. The truth is that if somebody approached you and said, let's have a fruit plate, <laughs> and particularly <laughs> when you have diabetes, because with diabetes, it's not just sugar, it's all forms of carbohydrate, including, including fruit. So people have this sort of misperception that there are these bad foods and these good foods. We've gotten into this habit in our culture of making food the enemy instead of putting ourselves in charge of gaining knowledge and wisdom about food and then making decisions based on our physical needs. 
if I don't need food at that moment, if my body is not physically hungry for that fuel, it does not matter what the fuel is. If I eat it, it's going to go to waste. I'm going to either store it, it's going to drive my blood glucose level up, it may make me feel tired, it may make me feel less like exercising. Ultimately, it's not serving its true purpose. It is, it's going to be excess by definition. Dr. May, what do you say to, to patients that you're treating who say, I don't want to keep focused, you know, I just want to eat and enjoy myself and I don't want to have to be thinking about it and then food doesn't become spontaneous and fun and it seems that I'm having to make all these decisions about why I eat, when I eat, and what I eat and how I eat and I don't want to do that. You know, I, we actually find that this, this approach is the solution for people who are just sick and tired of focusing all the time on, on all their food and all of this. In fact, I think that the other problem that we have in our culture in addition to this, this habit of eating unconsciously or eating for reasons other than hunger is that we've made food the enemy, as I said before, we make food bad and good. And what happens in that situation, it's easy for people to think about if they've ever, if they've ever struggled with yo-yo dieting. When you go on a diet, you have this whole list of, of allowed foods and not allowed foods or good foods and bad foods. And so when we do that, these bad foods end up getting placed on this pedestal. Now, at first, while you're motivated, you've got a lot of willpower, it seems to work well. Okay, I'm just not going to eat those foods. But over time, those foods begin to call to us. Michelle, I'm over here. They start showing up at, at break times and in the break room and, and uh, holidays and, and family dinners. All of a sudden, we're being exposed to these foods that we're not supposed to eat. We start to feel deprived. We start developing increased cravings for these foods that, that we're not allowed to have. And it starts creating this negative emotional tension about the food. So people end up obsessing. They're thinking all the time about what they should and shouldn't eat and what's bad and what's good. And so they end up using a tremendous amount of energy trying to control their eating. And to add fuel to the fire, a lot of diets teach people to exercise to burn calories. And in essence, that becomes exercising to punish ourselves for eating. So what we've done is we've set up this negative paradigm of restriction and deprivation and cravings. So eventually, when we eat the foods that we weren't supposed to, we feel guilty, we feel bad about ourselves, and we even say something like, well, I've already blown it, I might as well keep yeah. eating. So what happens in this whole situation is that people are so hyper-focused on good and bad foods that they're not even noticing whether they're hungry anymore. They're just focused on what they're allowed to eat. How does this, Dr. May, how does this fit into portion control? I mean, that's something that I'm very conscious of. Uh, Now, do you weigh and measure your food, Catherine, or are you just aware of how much you're eating at any given time? I'm pretty much, you know, I've had a lot of experience eating. I'm not that young, (laughs) so Mm -hmm. I know. uh, I'm pretty much aware of what I'm eating, but I do 
I don't weigh my food, but I like to measure it, and it, mm-hmm. it, it gives me some sense of what you're saying, being conscious of what I eat. I eat everything. Mm-hmm. However, and so I will measure, let's say, if I'm having a bagel with cream cheese on it, I will measure and have two tablespoons of cream cheese, which is mm-hmm. fine, which is enough, which is good. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. instead of having four tablespoons, which for right. a small person like myself does make a difference in terms of over a period of time you'll gain weight. Mm-hmm. So I do measure. I can, te- you know, I, I do measure, yes. Mm-hmm. But you one know, other question it, I have, yeah, I just want to ask you this because I find that I eat well and I eat good foods and yeah, but I'll have, you know, a half a cup of ice cream or I'll have a one piece of cake or, or you know, it's not that mm-hmm. I eat the bad, bad foods, but over time I have found that some of the, and I don't eat this stuff anymore, like this, the processed foods, they don't agree with me because right. I've been eating well. So I, I can have, let's say if I do have something that is not good for you or it doesn't have any nutritional value, it doesn't even taste good. It doesn't even feel good. And okay, that is mindful eating. So, yeah. um, so weighing and measuring may or may not be a part of mindful eating for an individual. Let's, let's, take this back into the context of, of diabetes and to this issue of portion control. If a person is on a diabetes diet that's rigid and they're obsessing about food all the time, then one of the things that we can help them do is learn to eat more mindfully and start tuning into these signals. Now, one of the, we talked about the idea of noticing whether you're hungry or not. Weighing and measuring your cream cheese wouldn't make any sense if you weren't even hungry when you ate that bagel. But it might make perfect sense in order to say, you know, I don't need to eat as much cream cheese as they give me at this store that I buy my bagels at. I need less. Now, if you have diabetes, the bagel is really the, the question mark here, not just the, not just the cream cheese. However, A person who eats instinctively, remember the baby I described earlier, the person who eats when they're hungry and stops when they're full, instinctively knows how much is enough food. And as you said, they have the experience to know that if I eat all of this, I'm going to feel too full and uncomfortable. I'll be drowsy for my 10 o'clock meeting with my boss, et cetera, et cetera. So here's a very simple way to manage portions. Make a little fist with your hand and set that fist right there at the top of your abdomen, right below your rib cage. That's where your stomach sits, and it is actually about the size of your fist when it's empty. So if your stomach is only about the size of your fist when it's empty, open up your hand and take a look. It only holds a palmful or a handful or two of food at one time comfortably without stretching. So what people begin to notice is that as they start to tune in using intention and attention, mindful eating when they eat, they start to notice that if I eat that whole plate of food that comes at the restaurant when I order that particular entree, my stomach will feel stretched because it's more food than my body needs. So they don't have to weigh and measure their food when they're out to eat or at other situations. They just need to notice if they are aware of the symptoms of their stomach stretching and their blood sugar being too high and feeling groggy and uncomfortable. That is a, that yeah. I, we have to stop. I could go on and on. We've reached the. We only have about thirty seconds left. But <laughs> I'm glad 
you left us with that because that's something I had not thought about. And I, as, I'm, as you're talking, I have my fist underneath my rib cage. But I want to mention your book one more time. It's Michelle May, MD, author of Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat with Diabetes. Great book and a great discussion with you this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show uh, on uh, voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. I hope you had a, a good morning. Uh, have a good week, and uh, we will see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.